0: <laughs> um. All right. So, who's who's in charge? Who's running this thing? Oh, you're doing okay. 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 Oh, the straight white man's in charge. What a shock!
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Fools Russian It's
1: the Limbaugh podcast show with Brian, Christine, Clay. You know guests who drop on by Oh, who they choose The freedom metaphor A presidential metaphor The limba Show Hong Chow Dolly D, Carrie and carry with a C dame emma i'm so fond anna girl you were great and blonde <laughs> daniel d you broke my heart michelle i loved you from the start angela bassett did the thing viola davis my woman king Blanchette, kate you're a genius and Jamie Lee, you are all of us. This is The Limbaugh. It's a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it? Who should receive it? And maybe a couple who shouldn't. I am Best Actress nominee Clay Russell.
0: I'm Stage Manager Christine Sear.
2: And I'm Brian Tuft. And I'm wondering why she said Blanchette Kate instead of Kate Blanchette, because it's the same amount of syllables. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look. She's a lot, okay? That's that's what she is. Ariana Du Bois is a lot.
0: Brian unironically loved the rap. I think him and It's why I watch
2: live TV. Like I want more of it. Yeah. That.
0: She at least did something. What would
2: have been better is after she said Jamie Lee, you were all of us, she fell. Like that's the only <laughs> way that it could have been better. Brian,
1: did you watch it live?
2: Uh I did not. Um because it was like aired at like three o'clock our time because it's the baftas
1: okay i was just wondering if if you saw it before you saw a link on twitter saying holy shit
2: no somebody posted the video and was like just so everybody knows ariana DeBose rapped about every actress who was nominated and it was immediately like a thing where i was like at the checkout line of the stop and shop and was like click (laughs) (laughs) I, I No headphones. I will not wait for a more <laughs> civilized time. I must experience this immediately. In,
1: in real time.
2: And it was worth it.
1: So this is my favorite episode of the year when we record. It's the show after the Oscars. And we have three film nerds here. We love talking about this stuff. And so uh, let's get into it. First thing, what did we think about as a show? What did we think about the Oscars broadcast this year?
0: Well, and I'm not the first one to point this out. Like, it was sort of refreshingly normal in terms of there weren't any major mishaps. There wasn't any, you know, misdemeanors. Or is assault a felony? I don't know. There weren't crimes committed on the stage. Right. (laughs) Other than crimes against fashion. Um, And I think there was a lot of really cool, like, there were a lot of really great wins that it was impossible to root against. I don't think there was a lot of true, like, everyone walked away disappointed because this won and that didn't win. Like, every, there's always a little bit of that. But I was like, it just felt like a mm-hmm. clean, clean show. A lot of great winners. Like, it was just, it was a good one.
2: It was a return to form, but it was still a night of surprises. As both of my co-hosts canceled <laughs> coming to my Oscar party just hours before the first award was presented.
0: Uh, okay, I
2: it was like a slap in the face. Look, I'm a I'm a package deal when
1: it comes to Christine. No Christine, no Clay. Okay? <laughs> that's that's how it works. It's like Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, okay? You you either have both or neither.
2: Keep that man's wife's name <laughs> out of your mouth.
0: <laughs> um Well, yeah. And I have to say, I was at, if anyone's listening cares, I was at a family dinner with a bunch of geriatric boomers who are like dimly aware that the Oscars were happening, but had not heard of like any of the big movies. I had to like refresh my parents' memories uh, about Indiana Jones because then there was like the hug photo and it was just, I had to do a lot of like spoon feeding to the crowd that I was with. Uh, which is a very different experience to me at Brian Tuft's house, which is like watching the inauguration from inside the White House. yeah, like it's it's very oh, I
1: loved it last year. It was a mix of uh, finally being allowed in Brian Tuft's house <laughs> and uh, all of the events that happened on the show made it a night that I'd never forget. And uh, yeah, it was it was disappointing this year. I'd say maybe uh, maybe next year, Christine, you can you can tell the fam, hey, it's the Oscars, you know, I gotta, I gotta watch it. Yeah.
2: Well, the Oscars will pivot back to February, so it will not crosshair with Aunt Winifred's okay, birthday. So th- <laughs> that was the
0: problem <laughs> is when I received the date from my mother, like a month ago, it didn't mentally feel like, oh, that's Oscar night. Cause it was so late. It was like mid, almost, almost mid March. And so it was like, it wasn't until my mom was like, see on Sunday. I was like, oh shit.
1: I put it in my calendar uh, well ahead of time to make sure that I'd keep that date clear. No big deal. It's okay. A lot of good (laughs) it did us. This will
0: be our last podcast because Brian is never speaking to me or Clay ever again.
2: I'm sorry, Brian, Um, but in all, uh, I don't apologize uh, because I don't accept. (laughs) <laughs> i um i have to say as like a big oscars nerd it was very strange to think about the idea that i think three films won all of the above the line categories yeah and sarah polly just got in there to me that's so crazy like that would never happen it's it never happened. kind of crazy mm-hmm.
0: And it, that's something I'm curious about. Clay referred to us as three film nerds. I'd say we're like two and a half. Like, I'm definitely the, the least knowledgeable of the group. So how does something like this happen? Because there's momentum. Yes. It's just
2: a weak
1: year for films. I think that overall, it was a great year for films. But this also ties in what I'm going to say about the show is, and I think this is an anomaly. I don't think it's the start of some Maureen trend, but there just wasn't a lot of star power at the show. There weren't a lot of stars at the Oscars. I think Margot Roby was probably the biggest star that wasn't nominated. Is that correct?
2: Uh, what about Nicole Kidman or Harrison Ford?
1: I think at this point that that she's bigger than both of them in terms of the actual pop culture awareness now, right? Maybe not Harrison Ford, but I think that she's bigger than Cate Blanchett in terms of, uh, I'm going to sound very douchey here, her Q rating.
2: Uh, Somebody's in the bag for Barbie. (laughs) I can't wait. It's going to be great. I can't wait.
0: Well, Harrison Ford is also... (laughs) By the way, did everyone in the room know what movie was going to win when Harrison Ford walked up to the podium? I feel like they had to... No, it was
2: supposed to be him and Glenn Close together, but she got COVID because God has decided she will never be within 10 feet of an Academy Award. (sighs) Oh, that's really sad. I didn't know that.
0: So, because I was like, they're clearly setting this up for this, Inevitable, adorable moment on stage, which ended up happening.
2: And there was there was supposed to be somebody very famous in the cocaine bear costume, but they dropped out as well for covid reasons.
0: Oh, what do you guys think about Jessica Chastain wearing a mask? (laughs)
2: I mean, she's on Broadway. She's trying to do seven shows a week. Exactly. A girl's got to do what she's got to do. If she wasn't in a production
1: where there are hundreds of people's jobs and a lot of people buying a lot of money for a theater ticket, if that wasn't at stake, I don't think she would have worn the mask. But I am completely on board with what she did because you got to be careful, especially when uh, when it's your show.
0: Mm hmm.
2: Also, Jessica Chastain is trying to win the Triple Crown before the end of the year. Okay, she's getting the Emmy for George and Tammy, and she wants that Tony for A Doll's House. And she can't get nominated if she's not there when the Tony voters come to see her during the opening right. week. So, you know, she's she's got to put her nose to the grindstone, and she just has to wear the mask.
0: And it's a beautiful nose, might I add.
2: It also really upset a lot of conservatives, which, you know, that was good for me. If
0: Rush Limbaugh was still alive, he would have been mad about it.
2: Jessica Chastain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Again, there were some great films in the Best Picture list: uh, Banshees of Inisherin and, and Tar. Those one and two titles alone, I think, are going to be. Uh, around for a very long time in terms of conversations about great films but yeah aside from top gun and avatar two movies that were nominated but i think it was widely considered never was even close to a chance of getting best director or best picture uh yeah it just it was kind of an off year for major films like that and uh, i think that you are going to see a big return next year With the the early talk about Oppenheimer, the Mm. Christopher Nolan film with Emily Blunt and Matt Damon and all of them. And uh, Dune 2, which will likely get nominated for Best Picture as well. And you're going to have Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet and, and all of those people on the red carpet. So it was an off year. And understandably, after what happened last year, the Oscars would play it very safe in terms of the production. So it was a little flat. I'll say that. But I still found it enjoyable.
0: Well, like in terms of movies, aren't we still in a weird, because of how long productions take, we're still in like a weird COVID zone with movies. Mm-hmm. Like we're watching... we,
1: And they're coming back in a big way this yeah, year. Yeah,
0: like the movies that we watched last year were being filmed in maybe maybe 2020 or 2021, and things were still pretty rough. So it's like, I think... Mm-hmm they were still kind of limping along in terms of like in terms of production. I'm not saying like these weren't good movies.
2: Um, so Clay, what actually are your top three films?
1: Sure. I'll start off my three. Uh, one of them is a best picture nominee and the other two are not. Uh, my first one, I'll go ahead and go with the Oscar nominee, which is the Banshees of Inish Aron, Martin McDonough's film. Fantastic script. I've always been a big fan of his writing of dialogue and I I feel like for the longest time, the plot point of putting your personal life over your quest for greatness in your art has kind of been uh, not necessarily told that often. And now it's it's pretty frequent with with a bunch of pop culture pieces of art lately. But I thought it was a really cool message. I thought that the performances were incredible, uh, especially Carrie Condon, who plays Colin Farrell's sister. And uh, I'd never really seen her in anything before. She was fantastic. And uh, yeah, just a really well done, well filmed, small tale. They didn't really go for fireworks or anything like that. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was really great.
0: So that was one of mine too. So I'll just skip the line and agree with you. I mean, I love... Movies or TV shows, any kind, or a book, any piece of, like, narrative that can, like, evoke such a range of emotional reactions in you. Because it was, like, you know, the first half, it was, like, I was laughing, I was charmed, but I was also, like, I'm also really sad. And, like, I I don't know what's going on. And then definitely the last third of the movie is, like, emotionally devastating. I cried. And I think it's the i think it would be tempting because i was trying to describe the um the storyline to my fam my clueless family at this dinner on sunday night he did what with his fingers i didn't tell him that part (laughs) but yeah you're just like i don't know it's these two friends and then they don't you know and then they have a falling out and then there's like a sad sister and a weird kid with a with a stick and you know like you can't I could always say something pretty good about a story that like you fall in love with and then you almost like struggle to explain to other people.
1: Yeah. And it's the dialogue that carries the film. It's, and I love those opening scenes of, yeah, we're not hanging out anymore. Oh, are you Rowan?
0: I don't think we're a Rowan. <laughs> Maybe we are Rowan. And it's upsetting to me. So Brian accidentally put my wife's name in his mouth when we were sort of recapping the next morning and he was like, yeah, both Banshees of Sharon and Elvis were totally shut out for Oscars. And I was like, they do not deserve to be in the same sentence, <laughs> even though they had the same outcome. And they did get, you know, some acting awards and I think some larger awards in some of the other awards shows like internationally. So it's not like they didn't get any, Um, they didn't get their moment in the sun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, justice for Jenny. She was a good donkey. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, So my number three, I'm going to pick something that sadly was not nominated for any Oscars this year, but probably should have been nominated for some Golden Globes and definitely a SAG award. um, And that is Fire Island, which uh, aired on Hulu over the summer. I think uh, there's been a lot of discussion about gay representation in film. And obviously we all had to live through that discourse when Billy Eichner's Bros came out in the fall. and. Uh, did not do well, and then everyone had to talk about whether it was because of the discourse or because people hate gay people. But I felt like Fire Island kind of avoided all of those pratfalls. It was a movie that told the story about a group of gay friends, but it at no point felt messagey or preachy. It just felt fun, and I, you know, would definitely put it in that echelon of modern-day romantic comedies uh, that are actually good. You know, I feel like we, keep, we have to have that conversation every six months about whether the rom-com is dead. It is not dead. It's just sometimes people make bad ones. And luckily, this one, uh, you know, Joel Cambuster made a very, very good one. And to me, it's one of those movies that I think we'll circle back to. I think the people who are in it continue to make great, great projects. And it'll just be like a kind of launching pad for this incredible roster of talent.
1: Before we started recording offline, we were talking about the return of movies being fun. And I'm citing Megan and I'm citing Cocaine Bear and those films, how it's just it's not a superhero movie. The world's not going to end. It's also not some Oscar prestige pick. It's just a fun pick with a nice premise. Would you put Fire Island in that as well,
2: Brian? Uh, I would, yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes I just want to watch a movie that, if it was released in the theaters, would make $60,000 and get a 71 on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Like, bring me back the mid-tier movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I do, I, I wonder if there was an advantage to releasing that film through Hulu as a streaming service so people would be able to discover it even if... Frankly, uh, most of those stars were not really well-known to most of the world, whereas with Bros, it was a bit more of a heavier lift, releasing it in a theater with the promotional budgets and, and everything with that.
2: Uh, I think that Fire Island did it the right way, really. So I respectfully disagree. I think that they got shoehorned into having to do Hulu because it was originally supposed to be a, hold on to your hats, everybody, a Quibi show, and that <laughs> I did not know <laughs> exploded. this. And it uh, was saved by NBC Universal, who was like, "We're going to pitch it and we're going to pivot it to Hulu." But I feel like the buzz around that movie was so good, and everyone was so excited about it that if it had been even released for two weeks to the theater, I think it would have had you know really great theatrical run. Because it was one of those movies that I wished I had seen with a crowd of people. Whereas I feel like there was just something about Bros where, especially coming on the heels of Fire Island, where I just feel like. You're right. Like it had so much of a heavy lift and some of that is the theater. But I feel like a lot of it was just like the vibe of the movie and the project and everything around it.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. My number two is a film that came out. I believe it was January or February of last year. Also a film that was direct to streaming uh, Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. Starring Zoe Kravitz, who will be coming back for my my other third pick. Uh, It's uh, this is the film I mentioned having covid being a big part of the storyline. It's a bit of a riff on Alfred Hitchcock's rear window in that with that film. If you haven't seen it before, Jimmy Stewart has a broken leg and has to stay inside and just kind of stares out of his backyard all day. With this, it's a tech worker played by Zoe Kravitz who, uh, through the COVID pandemic, has basically completely become a recluse and is just ruled by her neuroses, who works for an Amazon Alexa type of company and, and hears a crime in one of the recordings and has to actually venture outside. And incredible performance by her. I will say that I'd really only seen her act in big ticket type of pictures where she's playing the femme fatale and the coolest person in the room with this it's a very small contained performance and she's fantastic in it Obviously, with the Steven Soderbergh film, the uh, cinematography and the production values were incredible. It looks like they maybe took $1,000 to shoot it, just like a very small production, but just really well done with incredible performances. Uh, If people haven't seen the film, it's on HBO Max, so check it out if you haven't. Definitely a a recommendation by me.
0: I, I have not checked it out. I suppose I shall. If it's good enough for Clay Russell.
1: Yeah. Cool. Christine, how about you?
0: I mean, I guess I'll say it. I, I like the question whether to put this in or not because, and I figured we could just talk about it. So I'm going to say number two would be everything, everywhere, all at once. So I, it's like so hard to talk about this because I there's not a single award it got where I'm like, how dare they? I think maybe best picture, I was like, Because the thing is, I love what the movie did, which was, I don't know about you guys, but the word of mouth on it when I saw it was like, it's best to just go in knowing as little as possible and just like buckle up and enjoy the ride. So I really didn't know hardly anything about the plot. And so it was like, it truly was a joyful experience to take you from this very grounded story of like, um, first generation immigrants and their daughter and they have some trouble with the, um. I mean, I knew there was going to be more to it than this, but it's like you're so grounded in their reality that when they're like, okay, now it's about to get f***ing weird, you're like, okay, cool. The only thing that keeps me from being like, oh, it was the best movie, is like, and this is a lot coming from me, like sometimes it got a little too weird. Like in the aftermath of Jamie Lee Curtis's Best Supporting Actress nomination, I know a lot of people weren't happy about it, and some people were like, that was a dumb hackneyed performance with all the prosthetics and like all that stuff and then someone on twitter shared a clip from sort of the emotional climax of the movie when jamie lee curtis does do her best work in the movie which is like kind of a she comes to an understand without being too specific comes to like an understanding with michelle yo's character evelyn and it 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 is really (laughs) Good, but then I forgot that it's like the little, the big speech that she has is intercut with like the hot dog hands alternate reality where the two of them are like a couple Mm -hmm. and Jamie Lee Curtis is like lovingly caressing Michelle Yeoh's face with like her foot and she's like playing the piano with her foot. And I was like, this, like even seeing it out of context, I was like, this movie was maybe 5% too weird for me to be like, just full-throated like this was the best picture of the year but it's also exciting for a movie that just took so many crazy risks like narratively and visually for for this for it to have resonated so much with like audiences and the industry for them to be like yep this was it this was the best movie of the year
2: so I'll jump in and piggyback on that because it was actually it was going to be my number one, but it was number one, number two close. So, I mean, I'll just switch. But um, I feel like obviously hindsight is always twenty twenty, And I feel like the Academy was so excited to like pat itself on the back and be like, we picked this weird movie about this Asian immigrant family. This is very, uh, you know, cool of us. But like the movie is a unicorn. It is the only movie that made over 100 million dollars but also wasn't a sequel or a franchise film. Mm. And I mean, to me, it's just, it feels like it was reverse engineered in, in when you put it like that to win Best Picture because especially like Tar and Triangle of Sadness and all these art house films that normally would make like, you know, somewhere between 30 and $60 million before the pandemic are struggling to make $10 million. I think the idea that Everything Everywhere kept making money more and more money for the first couple of months of its release uh, week after week. And then did have these performance and did have all these narratives. Like it just, it felt like a natural fit. But to me, I, my one fear about this movie is it does sort of feel like, what if we took things that audiences love about Marvel movies multiple universes, time jumps, uh, big battle scenes and we then put them in a movie that's like palatable and doesn't require a 28 film refresher and a, you know, powerpoint from Kevin Feige for you to be able to enjoy <laughs> it. And I am curious like are we standing on the precipice of the marvelification of adult films and I don't mean adult films in a triple X way I mean like adult films and like which would be films designed for oh my god yes like every time I watch a porn I'm like you know what would make this cooler if Magneto showed up (laughs) um
0: (laughs) which one Fassbender um, or uh, Ian McKellen
1: if it's a porn version fast bender
0: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know
2: but um yeah i agree like to me i think the idea that it it was uh, so unlike something like the idea that it could be heartfelt and it could be jamie lee curtis uh you know stroking someone's face with a foot (laughs) definitely makes it something where a friend of the pod ben shapiro said that no one will be thinking about this movie in five years and i have to say i wholeheartedly disagree I, i feel like there are way too many people online who are proudly saying, I've seen this movie 17 times. I think that this is something where it has a a stickiness. Uh
1: Yeah, my only sentiment toward the film is, and this is no fault of the film itself, but if two years ago you would tell me that a film at the Oscars would win Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, and Best Film... I would say oh this is a masterpiece that you're talking about and I don't think it is quite a masterpiece I think it is a good film but yeah this is it had great timing the year that it was released and again even with all the I'll say in my opinion it is a little bit too look how clever I am in parts of the film but you can't deny that the performances are fantastic in it yeah and I think that that every single actor that that got that statue, deserved it. Even Jamie Lee Curtis, just the the shot of her and Michelle Yeoh outside of the laundromat mm-hmm. at the end was just fantastic acting. And I think that there are very few actors that would be able to bring that type of warmth to a role like that. Especially uh, the fact that they leaned into a, a movie that crazy and committed to their roles yes. just shows how incredible they are as performers.
0: Yeah, that's... The thing is, like, the the weirder the material is, like, the harder the, the talent needs to commit to it, and they all committed 100%, so.
1: Yeah. Cool. All right, uh, so my number one, and I'm about ready to sound like a real finance bro here, but it's The Batman. I went into this just thinking I would hate this film, Wait. and... I have to say, I absolutely loved it. I thought the cinematography was incredible. I thought that Robert Pattinson was incredibly weird and creepy in it. And the one thing that you can do that's going to get me to commit to your film is an incredible musical score. I think that Michael Giancino's score for the Batman Uh, was the best score of the year. And I think it was absolutely snubbed at the Oscar nominations this year, especially with All Quiet on the Western Front winning, which I think is a completely overwrought and basic score. I think that the Batman score is is absolutely incredible. I thought it was a, a really interesting imaginative film and i never thought that i'd be sitting here talking about a comic book movie for a film especially after we just talked about the marvel location of uh of cinema so there we go i will open up the mic so you guys can make fun
2: of me for the next 10 minutes you know who's great in the batman richard kind as the penguin (laughs)
1: Hold on! I always thought that it was a famous actor under a bunch of prosthetics, but that was Richard Kind. Yeah. Incredible, Brian! It's
2: TV icon and veteran character actor Richard <laughs> Kind. Wow, that's that's amazing. Good for him. It's good to see. It's good to see him get work. He deserves yeah. it. No, absolutely.
0: What was the plot? I didn't even see it.
2: Um, Steven Spielberg's dad tries to blow up Gotham, and Edward Cullen and Lenny Kravitz's daughter have to stop him. Mm-hmm. And then they run into the. Um, the slow kid from the from Anna sharing, yeah, Patrick from Banshees <laughs> Patrick is the. the
0: Are they Rowan or no?
2: no? But there's a jack there's a jackass on this
0: podcast. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
1: oh my! God. See, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. <laughs>
0: I'm just, I'm surprised. That's all I'm telling you is I'm surprised.
1: I, if you want to win me over, create an incredible musical score and I'll overlook a bunch of stuff. And this is the case in point to that.
2: Christine, what's your number two?
1: (laughs) The (laughs) Marvels. What's the shitty? (laughs) Was it the eternals? Uh,
0: No, (laughs) I, okay. So full disclosure, I looked at the list of the 2022 like global box office, I have seen very few new movies, or I had seen very few new movies in the year of our Lord 2022. So I'm going to give it to M3gan. <laughs> cool. I, you guys, like Clay was saying uh, about Cocaine Bear, and I think you actually did mention Megan in this. Like, It was just mm-hmm. f-ing fun. I had a fun time. Yeah. I was, yeah. was going to say the re-release of Titanic, but then I realized that happened in 2023. But otherwise, I would have said that because that... It
1: happened in 1998,
0: but the, Christine. It got re-released. That movie
1: is a quarter of a century old.
0: I don't want to talk about how old that movie is. Anyway, so uh, <sighs> I know we talked about Megan like a month or two ago after we originally saw it. And so I, I shan't belabor it. But yeah, I guess the theme that's coming out here... <laughs> From all of us is like, we want movies that like pick something and go for it. And Megan mm-hmm. was like, we're going to be a campy, fun, maybe a little creepy. I don't think I was ever actually scared. I was creeped out a couple times. times. Um, Not even when she's saying Titanium <laughs>
2: by LaRue. <laughs> terrifying.
0: Yeah, they were just like, they picked their lane and they're like, pedal to the metal. We're going to be a campy, fun, like horror movie. Yeah. So I'm hoping as we, maybe 2023 is a comeback year for genuinely great art in terms of movies. It's also just like fun. Like I want to have fun.
2: Mm-hmm. I can't wait.
0: Girls famously just want to have fun. Uh, Brian?
2: So my last movie that I'll pick is my, to round up my top three. If Christine picked a very fun movie, I'm picking a very unfun movie, and that's After some. okay.
0: I thought you were going to say don't (laughs) worry, Uh, darling.
2: I want to see it. I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's really good. I did consider making a joke and saying that my favorite movie of the year was Pinocchio, and then when you guys were like, oh, the Guillermo del Toro version, being like, no, the Robert Zemeckis (laughs) version on Disney Plus. Um, Tom Hanks had um, such a great year (laughs)
1: with acting.
2: As Geppetto? (laughs) But... After Sun kind of surprised me. I will say, just like uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, I did try to go in as blind as possible. But everyone had told me, oh, there's a big reveal at the end of the trip that they take on the, like, uh, it's told essentially as a flashback uh, over a vacation. And I guess, like, Marvel and just comic book movies in general have broken my brain that, I figured that it was like a um, a Black Mirror episode and it turned out that like the daughter was a robot or something and like she was no longer going to function after the trip because like they were sundowning her software. Like this is what I thought the movie was about when I went to go see it. I was like, what's going to happen after the sun sets?" It does have a very sci-fi title to it, After Sun. It just turns out that it's this f- devastating character study about <laughs> a young father who has some emotional... Uh, health issues and his strained relationship with his daughter after his divorce from her mother. And they just go on this trip and, you know, it's about kind of seeing your parents for who they are as you get older. And full disclosure, I know we were supposed to go back to the theater. That's what Tom Cruise wanted. That's what Nicole Kidman wanted. They're not even married anymore and they're still on the same page, but I watched it on a plane and I cried so hard at the end of the movie that the stewardess came over and gave me a free bottle of wine <laughs> because she felt so bad that I was so upset. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much to Clarissa from JetBlue. I will not forget you. <laughs> I also do want to say this was my first project that I saw Paul Mescalin, uh, because I do think that I was just i know myself very well and i knew that i was already too depressed during the pandemic lockdown to watch normal people and i'm so glad for those people who really enjoyed it but that just wasn't a journey that i was prepared to go on and i elected no so this was a really great introduction to him as an actor
1: all right guys 2022 in movies Very good. Uh, I would say that when we come back, Christine's going to be doing a profile on George Balanchine, but as mandated by the federal government,
2: we now have to play the Little Mermaid trailer. (laughs) We here at the Limbaugh are so excited to give you an exclusive first look at Disney's live action, The Little Mermaid. (laughs) We're just messing with you. That movie looks terrible. We can't wait for you to become part of our world. (laughs)
0: Okay, so this week we find ourselves back in the Reagan years, which, depending on your perspective, is either the golden age of America or where it all went wrong.
2: The Reagan years is a 50-50 shot. I make it to the end of this episode.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. It's always fascinating watching the full measure of a president's picks. This one jumped out at me because I was a little surprised that he picked. um, So it's George Balanchine. I will, uh, once I launch into the profile, attempt to give you his full proper name.
1: I feel like this is a Nancy pick, though, right?
0: Do you think? I mean, I think it's a couple things. It hits like a, you know, a major cultural thing, which is American ballet. Even though this George Balanchine is not American that was kind of where he came here and basically shaped American ballet to a degree that like is still being felt even though he died in 1983. so let's get into it I will caveat just like the time I talked about race cars I don't know a ton of ballet I have seen performances at the Swan Lake New York City <laughs> ballet including Romeo and Juliet where I <laughs> cried like I I support ballet as an art form I just I'm not super um, knowledgeable about it so, the man we all know as George Balanchine was originally born Georgi Melatonovich Balanchivazda in the country of Georgia. I'll,
1: I'll give you a round of applause Thank for that you. pronunciation. It's, it's a good job.
0: So, the thing about mispronouncing a name in a language you're not familiar with is just to pick a pronunciation and just power through it, right? You can't, like, bail out in the <laughs> middle and start over. You just have to, like, go for it. So he was born in on January twenty second, nineteen oh four, in Georgia, the country, not the American state. And just to give you the big picture, he co-founded the New York City Ballet, as sort of known as the father of American ballet, which considering he got here in the nineteen thirties and was born in Georgia is just sort of interesting to me. Like like the idea that American ballet was just sort of sitting around, like, waiting for a hero <laughs> to come and and do something. But apparently the state of American ballet was dismal until the 1930s when he swooped in. So I'm going to get into his personal life at the end, uh, which wasn't great and also is not... Like, it's sort of inextricable from his professional life. But I think it just makes sense to give that context to just talk about, like, what a giant he was in the world of ballet. All right, so... <clears throat> His first of four wives, he married when he was seventeen and she was sixteen. Her name was uh, Tamara Geva. He would exclusively go on to marry young ballerinas in uh, a little bit of a Matthew McConaughey. That's what I love about young ballerinas. I get older, and they stay the same age. So in his great. early career, you know, late teens and most of his twenties, you know, things weren't great over in Georgia. So he was part of a collection of ballet performers and choreographers who sort of toured around Europe. There was a famous group called the, I think this is French, so I'm going to pronounce it as such, the Ballet Russes, R-U-S-S-E-S, basically Russian ballet in French. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the age of 21, he was named their choreographer as well as a dancer, uh, which I've, seems like a pretty big deal. Sometime in his late 20s, not his late 20s, sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sometime in the late 1920s, He had a knee injury that basically ended his performance career. And so from that point on, he focused on um, choreography. But probably the fact that he had a basis as a dancer informed his ability to be a a talented choreographer. So, you know, at some point the ballet Rousset folded. He was in a couple more traveling ballet companies in Europe before finally coming to the U.S. in 1933. And at that point he was accomplished, you know, across the pond, And he came to the U.S. and wanted to, like, start a ballet school. He thought our ballet was weak and pathetic compared to his... You know, he had a very classical training. And I don't know what our people were doing, but it wasn't that. So another thing that was extremely relevant to my interests was he worked on Broadway as well. He was the first person to be credited as choreography by... Because prior to that, anyone who had done choreography was uh, was listed as dances staged by. So this idea that, like, I don't know, like, he was just such a consummate choreographer. He almost, like, helped professionalize that, like, turning the choreography into, uh, like, part of the lexicon. Instead of, like, who staged this dance? It's, like, who's the choreographer? And, like,
1: it... He turned it into it being viewed as an art form yes. versus just some musical thing where everyone twirls in a circle once.
0: Yeah. And do you guys want to know what show that was? It was a show called...
2: Spider-Man Turn On The Dark.
0: Yes!
2: The precursor to Turn Off The Dark. The less successful part Where several people <laughs> died doing called. the yeah.
0: choreography. No, it was called On Your Toes.
2: That's the thing they don't show you in the movies. A lot of people die in those Marvel battle scenes. You just didn't want to see it on Broadway. Too real. <laughs> Snowflakes.
1: Not <laughs> wanting to clean up corpses on a stage.
0: It's like a Gallagher concert. Like, you should just assume that you're going to get blood on you.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mommy, there's blood on my playbill. We'll get you a new one. This
0: is why we brought the ponchos, honey. So the. Sh- <laughs> okay, I'm getting back to business. Shut up. So the show that he, you know, this turning point of choreography by, was a show called On Your Toes that came out in 1936 uh, by Richard Rodgers and Lorenz Hart. This was prior to Richard Rodgers' infamous, not infamous, wonderful, famous collab with Hatterstein. So in 1946, so I don't know. So then, as you can tell, uh, over a decade goes by. My understanding is... You know, he had a ballet school. He was working on Broadway. Apparently, he spent a little bit of time in California and was also working on film musicals. Like music, it was just a big time for musicals. In 1946, he started, co-founded the Ballet Society, which within two years was sort of reimagined as the New York City Ballet. And it wasn't initially in Lincoln Center, but at some point it was based there where it still is today. Over his time in the New York City Ballet, he created more than 150 works of choreography for the dance company. So he was a busy guy. I would say the thing that stood out the most to me in 1954 was the debut of his version of the Nutcracker Ballet, which is pretty much the Nutcracker Ballet that, like, all of us know we've either seen it or maybe you've seen the shortened version at, like, the Radio City show or whatever. Also a very wonderful episode about of Will and Grace about them going to see it. And, you know, Harry Coddick Jr. is there and he doesn't like it. And, like, Will and Grace always go to the ballet together. Anyway, that's
1: him. I am curious to see what the choreography was like when Tchaikovsky wrote it and had that versus when Balanchine took it over. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's just night and day.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know enough about ballet to answer that question, but he was a busy guy. Let's just say that. So so that was 1954. In 1964, the Ford Foundation presented $8 million American dollars to the New York City Ballet, and that's not adjusted for today's dollars. So give it, I don't know, give that a little... A lot of money. A lot of f- money. And this was when he yeah. was in charge of the New York City Ballet. He got $8 million to basically do whatever he wanted with. So that was sort of like... You know, his power was at its peak, and I'm sure it took a very long time to work their way through $8 million. He stayed in charge of the New York City Ballet until 1982, when his age and his health were kind of declining and he stepped down. He would ultimately pass away in 1983, just a few months after getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And then just a quick, you know, Cliff's Notes of the honors and awards that he's gotten, and then we'll talk about him being kind of a creepy dude. Okay? Spoiler. (laughs) Was that? Oh, sorry. So in Georgia, he's a little bit of a national hero. Um, There's a monument at their main opera and ballet theater in his honor. He also has a crater on Mercury named after him. There's a segment of West 63rd Street in Manhattan between Columbus Avenue and Broadway called George Balanchine Way. That was named in 1990. In addition to the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, which is obviously an American award, he got the French Legion d'Honneur the Austrian decoration for science and art and the rest of them are American awards. He also got a Kennedy center honors and in 1988 was inducted into the American theater hall of fame. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the only thing, if you think about him getting a medal that might just make it an interesting pick is like, he's not actually American, but the, I think the clincher for him was that he did his best work and he did such foundational work for American ballet in the United States. So that makes sense to me. That would be a fun statistic you guys to run at some point. How many recipients of this medal are not Americans? Um I don't think it's a very yeah. I don't think it's a very high percentage, so and especially a Republican to accept an immigrant like as an honorary American, <laughs> you know,
2: it was the 80s.
0: So let's Mm -hmm. talk about his personal life. I mentioned briefly his first marriage was, you know, they were teenagers and she was a young ballerina. And then that was pretty much like he figured out what he liked, which was really young ballerinas. He had several, I think, four marriages in the course of his life, always marrying ballerinas in his company. At least one of them was referred to as his muse. And this is a ballerina how about this for like a full circle moment? So there was at least one that was like documented <laughs> where he kind of pulled a Lydia Tar and one of his exes, like this ballerina who he, he said was his muse, her name was Suzanne Farrell. You know, he kind of tried to damage her reputation and her career after she left him, but she turned out just f-ing fine because she was such a successful ballerina. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom herself in 2005 from George W. Bush.
2: Oh, Another Republican. So who had
0: the last laugh?
2: Sounds like she did, because she was still alive in 2005 and this man was mm-hmm. not.
0: <laughs> he <laughs> called her his alabaster princess in addition to his muse. So there's that. And then the New York Times, his obituary 1983, the New York Times, I have to say also, like, a lot of the primary sources, like, I got the stuff about him being a creep from Wikipedia, but there's a page, obviously, about him on the New York City Ballet's website, like, Encyclopedia Britannica's website has, like, an entry on him, and then there's his New York Times obituary, and there's not a lot about this, and there there isn't even, like, I know he hasn't, you know, he died long before anyone gave a shit about powerful men, using their power over women to, mm-hmm. you know, in abusive ways or whatever. I, by the way, I don't know if there's any indication he literally abused them, but it's just like the incredible power imbalance, in some cases, age different. Like when he's calling Suzanne Farrell his alabaster princess, she was 19 and he was 61. So like, wow. you know, I'm not saying I think he was literally abusive but the whole dynamic was like not healthy at all and so i i guess maybe in hindsight it's just it's not clear for some of these um you know <laughs> when you're doing a retrospective on him or the new york city ballet itself being like this is our guy this is the father of american ballet you know do they have to do a little asterisk like he was like a little creepy though because it wasn't It's not like a lot of the the prominent places where you see like a a retrospective on him. It doesn't mention anything about this. I don't know. I mean, the idea that this guy who is so into and don't forget, like it's it's the it's the status he had in the industry. It was like literally the money that he had. He almost, I mean, I know eight million dollars in 1964 isn't a literal blank check, but it like kind of is, especially if you're putting on ballets. So the idea that like every couple of year every several years he would pick a new late teen early 20s ballerina to be his his muse and eventually his wife and then move on to the next one. It's not great. I don't know. And that's yeah. that's kind of um I mean and and I think it's like that whole I don't think this is a spoiler but the movie Tar which we alluded to at the beginning of the show but didn't really do a deep dive in cuz none of us picked it as Best movie, even though it is very good, and I did still a great film. It's a great film. Yeah, yeah. it just like could have gotten. I don't know. There, there. It was a little all over the place. But anyway, that is almost exactly the dynamic that's portrayed in the movie by Kate Blanchett's character, which is set in the present day, and so there's a major reckoning, like privately and publicly and professionally, for her, basically picking. <laughs> like, her new girlfriend out of the orchestra, like, elevating a young woman in the orchestra.
1: And no one says anything. No one
0: says anything. She usually strings her along, gets tired of her, moves on to the next one, and <laughs> then if the the ex, you know, doesn't behave perfectly, she gets, like, blacklisted. And I, I wonder if maybe this, you know, when they were sort of drawing... I know that she was most strongly inspired by... Clay, you name-dropped him over text earlier.
1: James Levine. Yeah,
0: but it's like... <laughs> Either they also took this man into account, or it's just an unfortunately, like, common thing.
1: James Levine, uh, he's a real treat. His uh, accusers at the time were 16, 17, 17, 18, and 20-year-old boys.
0: Right. So, you know, sometimes crimes are actually being committed. And even when they're not, it's like, eh. And I think it's in any profession, and the arts is absolutely among them, Where it's incredibly competitive. You do have these like icons, like larger than life, cult of personality type figures in that field, like professionally or artistically. And it happened in Hollywood too. It basically seems like repeatedly giving these men godlike status among a bunch of young people who are so desperate to. To get a foot in the door, like getting a paid job as a member of an orchestra that you can support yourself on or as a ballerina in the New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center. Like these are the things that people would literally kill for. And so the idea that there's a dude and like, yeah, Tar was a woman, but it's also made up Uh, in real life. It's almost always a dude.
1: I would put Balanchine in a separate... Tier of there have always been powerful, and let's face it, they're mostly men who use their power to take advantage of people. Mm -hmm. But then there's that other tier in the art world where uh, they are brilliant innovators and uh, are these artistic geniuses and again it gives them a free pass to do terrible things. I think that that is where uh, the Lydiatar parallel comes into play with George Balanchine. I also I think that we're naturally heading into the who would this person be today zone. I think that it's Woody Allen. Woody mm. Allen is a brilliant filmmaker who is a comedic genius who brought that type of independent and auteur sensibility to uh, comedy films he's also a creep <laughs> yeah and so uh, people looked the other way for a very long time because he was a genius yep. that absolutely his power protected him but it was also people saying oh this is just his process this is how he comes up with his brilliant work is to be able to you know cast these 18 year old women and make them the love interest and all that right so Definitely there are powerful people that are creeps and then there are the, the. you can't deny that Balanchine was a genius, I know. but he also took advantage of that image.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like at least the ballet world is choosing to just sort of like let that ride. And to be fair, it's, you know, he's been dead for 40 years. So what can you really do? But, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: I think it would be a lot like how Woody Allen's fate is now if Balanchine was around today and that people are definitely whispering that his films are incredible and no one can take away that Andy Hall is an amazing film, but he's also a creep and that is always going to be a parallel conversation that's going to be had about his legacy.
0: Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's tough. I don't know that I would call him a limbo outright. I'd give him like half Limbaugh, the half of him that was doing amazing ballet and changed the national and global landscape and created masterpieces. And again, we, like, we've like we sometimes used this definition cynically, but part of the point of this award is like, oh, this is someone who exemplifies American values. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, a successful, powerful, middle-aged to elderly white guy <laughs> having power over people that's kind of, that's kind of in the fabric of America. So maybe that's America. That's Apple. I know
2: (laughs) that's Superman.
0: It's a half Limbaugh and a half deserve the award. Is that, it's
1: an important conversation to have though, is that there are tons of American geniuses, but you need to be a good person to deserve the medal. Yeah. And that just because, uh, whether it's James Levine or it's Lydia Tarr. I know Lydia Tar is not a real person, but like that or what? Phil S- I know, I know <laughs> fictional person, uh, or Phil Spector, the record producer behind be my baby mm-hmm. and, and all of those incredible hits. Like, yes, those are geniuses, but you also need to exemplify, a type of goodness and fostering of of American values to deserve that medal, and I think a half Limbaugh is an accurate description for that. Yep. I don't think that he deserves the medal because of what he did, but you also can't deny his artistry.
0: Yeah, and also it just feels right for a Reagan pick, right?
1: <laughs> it does. Yeah. yeah. Just,
0: it just feels people right. People
1: looking the other way. Yep. Yeah.
0: All right. When we come back, Brian's going to take us through the medals of the week. All right. Take us home.
2: Oh my God, you guys, we're back. And it's time for the medals of the week. The medals of the week are... We suspended reality for five minutes and made ourselves the president of the United States. Who we would give a medal to, and sometimes it's someone who's worthy and deserving for a lifetime of service, and sometimes it's a tugboat that helped get a big boat out of a tiny canal. Um, Clay, I think you're starting us off. Uh,
1: it's actually Christine that's starting us. It's a good try. That's what us. I said. It's a really good try. <laughs> uh,
0: ladies first. Thanks. All right, I'm just going to get right to it. I'm giving my medal to Pedro Pascal. Two out of three of us on the Limbaugh have been fans of his since he sauntered onto the screen in Game of Thrones wearing a yellow cape several years ago. was devastatingly attractive and charming and tragic. Spoiler alert for a very old, very poorly concluded show. And then I feel like we didn't see him for a while. He was around, but then he decided when everybody else was like staying home, making banana bread, he was going to book like three huge jobs in a row. And that's what he did. I don't watch the Mandalorian. My understanding is he, he, he's great. I, you know, I'm very happy for him getting the, uh, but
1: it's mostly a stunt man, right? Like he's rarely with the helmet off. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But he has enough charisma (laughs) to act his way through that helmet and resonate with audiences which is exactly what he did. And the other thing, which I think just concluded on Oscar night at mm-hmm. The Last of Us, which is HBO's adaptation of a beloved video game. And when I say beloved, I mean by gamers, including me. It's a really good game. Uh, I was nervous.
2: Wait a minute. I thought it was a spinoff of This Is Us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So after the dad dies in a slow cooker <laughs> fire, everyone turns into zombies.
1: I famously hate scary things, and even I took time to watch the entire series, and it's really well done, and Pedro Pascal's absolutely incredible
0: in it. He's very, very good. It's about trauma. He's good in the role, and I feel like I can't... I'm going to give him praise for this, but if we want to discuss a little bit when I'm done talking. So he and Bella Ramsey, who plays who plays Ellie, his like surrogate daughter in the show, uh, have been on a The press tour to end all press tours. Um, The show's been a hit, but they have also, like, on a personal level, been a huge hit. They're very charming. They bounce off each other great. They seem to just genuinely love working together, and it it really shows in the show they were able to tap into something on screen, stuff like that. And Pedro Pascal, I mentioned it at the beginning, is also an incredibly good-looking man. So... While the internet has been, like, delighted by him, like, happy to see him succeed, he's great in interviews, all that kind of stuff, there's also been what I can only call the daddy discourse, because I feel like it happened quickly, like, somewhere between Game of Thrones and now, he aged into, like, the daddy age, where I certainly wouldn't call him... He's, like, early middle age, I guess, and so being that hot and charming, he also plays, like, a very protective father figure in the show he's sort of getting this weird segment of objectification from the public that I have noticed in the last week or two, he has even started getting a little tired of like there was, he was on some red carpet um, last week or the week before. And the red carpet reporter was like, wanted him to read tweets about himself that were like, like horny tweets about him basically. And he like politely was like, Oh no, I don't want to do that. Because I think it's like getting a little bit, a little bit much where it's just like, oh, he's daddy, like Pedro Pascal's daddy. Like, I feel weird even bringing it up because it's like, oh, women get objectified all the time. And here's like one guy. And the objectification isn't even just like he's just so insanely hot, like a Chris Hemsworth. It, like, part of it is his personality in addition to his looks. But it has gotten like a little weird. And I'm sure he's probably relieved that both of those shows are finished airing and he can kind of like.
1: I bet he's also very thankful that he's become this popular in his middle age where he's smart enough to understand like, all right, this is just a phase. I'm just going to laugh it off and continue to work hard. Whereas if it was, you know, a 21 year old or whatever they would like probably just go completely insane yeah. yeah
2: um i will say like this has been a long time coming though because i tr- just tried looking for it somebody posted the most like insane tweet about pedro pascal when wonder woman 1984 came out on hbo max uh christmas 2020 you know before the vaccines <laughs> And the person had said this, like, it was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, I'm glad this movie is coming out on HBO because I would get arrested in the theater masturbating to Pedro Pascal. And he responded to the tweet. And it was, like, a thing where, like, like, and not in, like, you should be ashamed of yourself or what's wrong with you people. Like, literally, like, pushing this person forward. And it's been a thing where I think at that point when it was, like, a very online thing and it was like if you knew you knew if you didn't if you weren't following him or you weren't you know plugged into twitter 16 hours a day you you missed it but i think like when juliana Ransick is like hey daddy oh i'm all wet for you daddy <laughs> like on the oscar red carpet like yeah like that's the problem is the internet takes these things on the internet that are, or the uh, the media at large tries to take these things offline. And, like, it's fun to t- yeah. to, call, to call Pedro Pascal daddy on the internet. It is not fun to call Pedro Pascal daddy at a roundtable interview at a Marriott in Los Angeles <laughs> while he's promoting <laughs> The Last of Us. Like, you know, it's just, don't ruin it. Yeah, yeah. He knows. He's online. He's as, he's as much of a part of it as he wants to be a part of it. But when you're standing there on the Oscar red carpet and he just wants to, you know, tell you about the suit that Tom ford meet him or whoever made his outfit uh and talk about how excited he is about the last of us and you know all of this stuff and you're like so you're the daddy of the internet how many people do you think you're making horny tonight <laughs> like it's just like a thing where it's like yeah no one wants to be part of that yeah
0: so he gets my limb off for being super talented and like crushing all the the work that he's been doing being seeming like just, and
1: crushing being a celebrity yeah
0: and and handling it with good humor, but maybe occasionally putting up a boundary and like, no, I'm not gonna read these horny tweets on camera. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> we love you, Pedro, we respect you. We also notice that you're really handsome and, and that's that's enough for us.
1: Cool. Mine is a definite limbaugh, and I get to do something that I don't get to do very often with you two, which is talk about a sportser <gasps> My Limbaugh goes to New York Knicks owner James Dolan. Now, I've always hated him for decades now as the owner of the Knicks because he has destroyed that team and they haven't won a title in half a century. But now he's become such a douchebag that he is actually making news for non-sports things as well. I'll go ahead and start off by uh, talking about the current events that are happening with him, and then we can kind of back up into the other douchey things that he does as well, so... Right now he's in the news because he is making every single person that walks into Madison Square Garden go through facial recognition software and has a list of enemies of people that he will ban from Madison Square Garden. So, for instance, he's being sued for underpaying workers and he is entered in the photos of employees of an entire law firm. And anyone that works for the law firm that's defending these people is banned from Madison Square Garden. What? Super chill dude. Right. And so you would think that after that news came out that he would actually back off a little bit. Because guess what? When you use facial recognition and ban a bunch of lawyers from going to a Knicks game and mm. from concerts you're going to make even more enemies. And so what did this law firm do? They filed a complaint with the state liquor authority in New York, because to have a liquor license in New York, you have to have an area that admits the general public. And so if you use facial recognition software to ban the public, you will have your liquor license revoked. So they are looking to take the liquor license away from Madison square garden. Now again, you would think that (laughs) James Dolan would get the idea and maybe back off. But oh no, an article was published today at 5.35pm that the state New York Liquor Authority investigator in charge of investigating the case was driving home sometime this week when he noticed that he was being tailed by a Chevrolet And then camping outside of his house and taking photos and following him around all day. That's because James Dolan has hired a private investigator to follow around the liquor license investigator (gasps) and intimidate him during the case.
0: This is like mafia shit.
1: Super chill, dude. Now, let me go ahead and back up. Let's take a time machine back to talk about what an idiot this guy is. He is the son of a billionaire who is the founder of Cablevision. So that is how he initially made his money. And you would think that he would just sit back and just take his father's money and not do anything. But oh, no, because James Dolan has a blues band. James Dolan has a band called J.D. and the Straight Shot. (laughs) And guess what, folks? (laughs) They're terrible. Mm. They're an awful band. But you know what? You know where this is going. When you own Madison Square Garden, what do you do? You put your band in the position to open for huge rock acts like the Eagles, Jewel, Keith Urban, the Dixie Chicks and ZZ Top. When a normal band would open for these people in an arena, he gets his band Again, they're called J.D. and the Straight Shot to open for all of these huge bands and all of the Billy Joel concerts that are there. Also, according to company policy, he makes employees show up to every single gig and they take attendance to see who does and doesn't show up to go see his (gasps) shitty blues band. Oh, my God. So, James Dolan. I do hate you for being a terrible sports owner, but I also hate you for being a complete douchebag. You get my Limbaugh for the
0: week. I mean, I have to second that and no one else can see this, but my cat is in the frame and he can't even he can't even look at my computer because he's so disgusted.
1: James Dolan is a terrible person. Even cats know it. (laughs) Brian, take us home, buddy.
2: So if Pedro Pascal being the daddy of the Internet was the thing that Gay Twitter was talking about five weeks ago, there are two things that Gay Twitter is talking about this week. One of them is we're rewatching Girls, so get on board. Number two is there's been a slow sort of like rediscovery of... A delightful, if you were there for it, unfortunately undiscoverable if you were not there for it, daytime television show called The Rosie O'Donnell Show. And there's definitely a, like, meme account. His first name is Danny. I can't think of what his last name is, who is probably the backbone of this. I think his name is Danny Pellegrino, who's been, like, posting these videos of, like, Rosie O'Donnell interviewing different celebrities. And there's just been this kind of conversation that's been happening about the different things that the Rosie O'Donnell show brought to us. And like, obviously there was fake thirsting after Tom Cruise. Cause you're a closeted lesbian. There are coosh balls. There are big K commercials with Penny Marshall. But I think those are the things that we remember most. But I think that uh, what's been lost to time is that like the Rosie O'Donnell show would have like Britney Spears, Alec Baldwin, and then a performance by a new show that was opening off-Broadway called Stomp as the third guest. And essentially, like, she was bringing culture from New York to people who weren't in New York. And, like, now as elder millennials, there's been a lot of conversations amongst my gay peers talking about how when I went to New York, I knew I had to go see this show because I saw it on Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie talked about it all the time. And this all culminated for me in a recently resurfaced clip where she had Rosemary Clooney on the show and Rosemary Clooney was apparently in a Broadway show at this time. It was like the late nineties and it was her birthday, the day that she was going to be on Rosie O'Donnell and Rosie surprised her with an Al Hirschfield portrait because she'd always wanted one, or there was one done of her and it was lost. And Rosemary Clooney just becomes so overwhelmed and starts crying and Rosie starts crying and they just have this great back and forth. And it re it, to me reminded me that Rosie O'Donnell was the person who taught me that it is so cool and you should not be ashamed to like unabashedly love something to talk about it all the time. Like I think about all of the bands and all of the shows and all of the movies that she like full throatedly supported on her show. And I feel that that voice is missing from daytime television. And the parallel that I will draw to this is I think the heir to the Rosie O'Donnell throne on daytime television right now is Kelly Clarkson. I was just going to say that. But I went to see Kelly Clarkson tape uh, last year when she was here in New York and she had on Connie Britton like right after White Lotus had exploded. Everyone had been nominated for Emmys and you just, you have this television icon. She's on the hottest of hottest shows at the moment. And Kelly Clarkson, completely unembarrassed, goes, yeah, I haven't watched it. And it was just like a thing where I was like, Rosie would never have done that. Mm-mm. Rosie would have been on there like, Ooh! <laughs> like she would have been ready. She would have had her theories. She would, have, she would have been wearing a white Lotus sweatshirt. Like it would have been on. And to me, it is a thing where I remember being very excited on days when I was sick, home from school, and I got to be in bed watching the Rosie O'Donnell show at 10 a.m. And I feel like a lot of... Her goodwill has dissipated, especially that view chapter. There was the point where she tried to do stand-up comedy. Can you talk about the view chapter? I have to be honest; I don't really know a lot about Rosie O'Donnell. So take she, me. She was like very combative you know and very mean, and right. she was right about a lot of it. Like, but it was just the optics weren't great. Like just a lot of a spe- aggressive. Like, I mean, energy. I'm never going to come out and defend Elizabeth Hasselback, but like, I just sometimes you kind to pink your battles when you're fighting with Elizabeth Hasselback. But it. um. I feel like as of late, there's been like a couple of uh, television roles that she's taken. Most recently, she had like a great kind of supporting role in the television adaptation of A League of Their Own, where she kind of played this very butch woman in it and not at all related to the character she played in the original film. I'm like if Jamie Lee Curtis can come back from the brink uh, of doing Activia commercials and starring in Halloween h 20 with fellow Oscar nominee this year, Michelle Williams. I'm hoping that there's something great out there for Rosie O'Donnell. I hear you. She gets my medal of the week. And it's not a Limbaugh. It's a full-throated, let's go to the Rose Garden. I want you crying like Ellen, <laughs> and I want to put this medal around your neck.
0: Like <laughs> Ellen or like Joe Biden.
1: <laughs> I think that your point about Kelly Clarkson makes an important thing uh, to talk about, which is it takes a special person to be... Uh, a curator and be really benevolent toward art that you like. And the fact that she was able to be that tastemaker and use her spotlight that she had on her to really push things that really weren't in culture at the time, I
2: think is a really cool thing. And yeah, it's, you don't really get a lot of that in today's media. To me, it's very similar to, we've talked about him a lot on the show. Like Elton John is really paying attention to current music and is very excited to like collaborate Uh, Recently, there was that famous interview with Charlie Puth where he said the most devastating phone call I ever got was Elton John called me and told me my new album sucked. And uh, he was like, (laughs) Elton was like my biggest cheerleader. We've done a duet together. And he was like, I don't know who you think this album is for. I don't know who you think you are on this album. You've completely lost the thread. Uh, It's not your best work. And, you know, I think like that's like harsh, but it's also a thing where it's like only somebody who truly loves music and is still involved in it and is still curating and paying attention and looking for times to jump in and looking for times to foster could do that. And I feel like for a golden era, the Camelot of daytime, that was Rosie. Someone needs to put together a Spotify playlist
1: of all the songs that Elton John guests on piano with doesn't even sing just like wants to perform on recordings. Just how much of that is
2: out
0: there that you don't
1: even realize that that's him on piano. The guy's just like a lifer and he cares about
2: music. So yeah. Don't shoot me. I'm just the piano player.
0: Um. So I want to tie this into another pop culture moment post Oscars and we can cut this if the whole thing gets too long, but did anyone see there was Ashley Graham was on the red carpet at the vanity fair after party Oh yeah. And had that interview with Hugh Grant. For those who haven't seen it. I thought
1: it was the red carpet before the Oscars, wasn't it? She didn't watch a live play. She was at a
2: restaurant, no, a B it tier was the, restaurant. It was the
0: after party, but it was the Vanity Fair after party, which is like
2: Okay. It was it was the pre show for the Oscars, you stupid it was bitch. A you didn't even watch it. I
0: thought the Vanity Fair party yes. was after.
2: Because he says it's Vanity Fair, talking about it in the literary sense. And she's like, yep, the party. Can't wait to go. We're going to unwind. That's where oh, we went." wasn't loose.
0: at the Vanity Fair party.
2: No, he was on his way up the stairs into the Dolby right. Auditorium okay, or so, whatever it's called now. The
0: point is, you know, there was like backlash to that moment and then there was the backlash to the backlash. And the backlash to the backlash said that was actually on Ashley Graham because she wasn't well prepared to speak with him. Because in addition to missing his literary reference, which i that's fine if that's not her wheelhouse, she, like, asked him about Glass Onion, which apparently he's in for all of 10 seconds. And then he's in either been in a movie or there's some movie coming up. Like, she just had no idea what he was even doing there and didn't ask him any questions that were, like, relevant to the night or relevant to, like, what he was supposed to be promoting. She was just like, oh, my God, what was it like being in Glass Onion? And he was like, you know. And so, yes, he was being, like, very Hugh Grant cranky British about it. And it was a little snobby to make a literary reference that, like, a model who probably didn't study literature wasn't going to get.
1: Well, that's on the segment producer's fault because they're the ones that come up with those questions and they clearly did a half-assed job.
0: Don't the red carpet interviewers, like, call people over? They're like, Hugh Grant, come talk to us. Like, why did she she call him over and then had, like, nothing really of substance to ask?
1: Well, again, you had someone on the team call the people over like right. she's she there had, to like, you know, look at the cue thing. card and yeah. like ask the questions and do that. And they clearly did not prepare her. I'd be furious if I was her. But I will say just incredible comeback. So what are you wearing tonight? A My suit. suit. OK, well, who made it? My tailor.
2: <laughs> no f- given. Yeah, I mean, I will say like. I definitely feel like Hugh Grant is, has told us that he is not like a very nice person. Mm. And I think being mean to her on live television, yeah, she probably interviewed 55 people. Like she was not curating those questions herself. And to ask her, to, like if she had been like, oh, tell me a little bit about some other movie that he had been in just as like the Kingsman where he's in it for one scene or the man from Uncle or something. I'd be like, okay, I understand why you were such a dick about it. Like, Glass Onion was nominated for an Oscar that night Like, of course she was like, oh, you're probably here Because your film is nominated Like, I can understand how the segment producer Got there, so, I mean Massive limbo out of you, uh, Grant I know Clay always bleeps the F-words, but f*** you <laughs> I like the bleeps I like the bleeps I'm gonna say it
0: Sterling agrees
1: Aww Bring him uh, bring him up to the mic, see if he has anything to just
2: say to our listeners Do
0: sure, you wanna say anything?
2: Kate Blanchett was robbed. <gasps> what, <laughs> Sterling?
1: I agree, Sterling. I agree. All right, guys. This was our uh, our movies it. episode. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Well done. Let's do it again sometime.
1: Uh, oh God! I just looked at the agenda, guys. We we didn't push the Little Mermaid enough. We have to watch it again. Oh,
0: God. Disney, please send us an additional million dollars, and we'll plug it next time.
2: Welcome to this episode of The Limbaugh, where we're going to take you under the sea. (laughs) Come be part of our world as we cover the... The movie looks
1: terrible. Goodbye. See you next time.